Hi everyone, and welcome to the Whiteboard Podcast. Whiteboard is a podcast that invites recent design grads to be candid with faculty on their time as a student. These are the conversations that profs and students should have, but can't. Exploring the intersecting needs of students, faculty, the education system, and the job market as a whole. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Whiteboard Podcast. My guest today is Scott McMahon. Scott's been a graphic designer for over 40 years, and I'm really, really happy that he chose to join us today. Um, thanks very much, Scott, and and welcome. Thank you very much, Eric. It's good to be here. You've been a graphic designer for a long time. Including school. Uh, this is 40 years, including school. I started graphic design in the fall of 1982, so almost exactly 40 years ago, and I went to St. Lawrence College in Kingston. Uh, it was a three-year program, and I have worked in the industry uh, ever since. I've worked in Toronto. I've worked in Ottawa. I've worked in pure graphic design. I've been transitioning sort of out of graphic design as a pure discipline into things like public relations for a while. And then currently I'm an art director for Gray Canada. I've had lots of different titles. I've been a creative director. I've been an associate creative director. I um, it, Titles aren't necessarily a thing for me, um, but it, but it's funny. They are a thing, but they aren't a thing. Um, and then on top of that, I have taught part-time at various colleges, uh, including uh, Sheridan in Oakville, uh, George Brown in Toronto, and OCAD in Toronto. Although when I taught at OCAD, it was still just OCA. And you are still teaching through BS. So I just do a live stream that I've, I have picked Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Um, I didn't want to interfere with sort of an Eastern time zone work schedule. All in, in that, I just do deep dives into different aspects of the Holy Trinity from Adobe, which is InDesign, Illustrator, and Photoshop. That's awesome. People can find you on Behance if they just search Scott McMahon? Uh, yeah, just yeah, Scott McMahon, spelled the way it sounds, M-C-M-A-N-N. Yeah, or find me on LinkedIn, and I'm, I usually post something about it weekly, about it coming up, and I'm usually pretty good about being every week. It's a nice sort of clean way to keep in the mode of trying to help people learn. So it's probably evident to some people why I thought you'd be an amazing guest that we're all lucky to have join us. It's evident from just the scope of your career. So many different job titles, and including um, teaching, you kind of see this from all angles. And a lot of students want to know, they, they need someone who can sort of break down the agency world, the design world, the sort of movement from education, what should I study if I want to do this? Um, you know, what softwares are, are important, what, what knowledge is important, what uh, human skills are important. And so we have like so many questions for you. Uh, about those kinds of things. Do you feel do you feel like you're going to be a good resource for these kinds of questions? I think I think I, I think it can be, but at the same time, um, there's an underlying sort of thing that I think is important to understand, and it goes back to something that you and I were talking about before we uh, started recording this session. And you know, just the just the list of what you describe, right? Like the understanding of what should somebody study, what human skills, what 
you know, the, the list in terms of what you could be concerned about or think that you need to be um, holistically aware of can become, I think, a little overwhelming, especially if you let it become encompassing and, and something that you need to have, that you put some sort of timeline on in terms of, you know, I need to, I need to be in this position, you know, two years after I graduate, or I need to have this much knowledge when I graduate. And I can, I can tell you that, you know, when I taught, one of the things that I would say to my class at the beginning is that, you know, every person in every class is unique. Will we learn exactly the same amount of information in this class as the exact same class in terms of a subject matter that I, that I taught last semester? And the answer is, I don't know. It could be less, it could be the same, or it could be more. All I can guarantee is that, for instance, if I was teaching a class on Illustrator, what I can guarantee is that you will leave this class knowing more than you did at the beginning of this class about Illustrator. That's it. Um, because there are too many in, in this industry, there are too many things to be, you know, to have a checklist about that will eventually come in time. And I think that that's the underlying thing is that I think that, you know, students need to understand that there is, there's a time part of the equation to all of this that is going to help all of it. You know, the longer that you do it, the more information you're just going to pick up, one, by osmosis, two, by trial and error, and three, by being surrounded by people that hopefully are fourth forthcoming with information and helpful information. So I don't, I don't know if that answered the question or. It does. I, I think what I'm hearing is that design, it's a long river. It's a wide river. It's a deep river. It's a fast moving river. A lot of people think that at, at the end of that river, you're going to be an art director or a graphic designer or maybe a production designer. And um, is it useful to speak in those terms? Is it useful as a student to sort of uh, tailor your studies to get you to one of those places? Is it practical? Yeah, I think that, um, again, I'm going to be a pure Libra here and I'm going to go, I'm going to try and balance it across all three of those particular um, sort of entry level titles that you talked about. The fundamental difference, at least from when I went to school and the way in which I sort of view the world of communication or applied communication arts is that graphic design falls much more into, you know, what I'll call a studio environment. And I'll explain all of this in a sec, but, you know, whereas an art director would fall more into an agency sort of environment. And that the production artists, as much as there, that there are still people that have that title, production artists sort of is becoming, um, you know, an absorbed, uh, position within both graphic design and advertising in the sense that if we go historically when when i was getting out of school and we we had no computers right mm -hmm. the macintosh was just introduced in 84 and i graduated in 85 so it was very expensive there really wasn't software it wasn't ubiquitous like it is now we got out of school we worked on what are called boards we used typesetting galleys 
that were from big, expensive typesetting machines. We created artwork on boards. It went to uh, film houses that was shot and you know produced into our work for the Offset Press, etc. You're talking about paste up into camera ready. Yeah. I was, you know, in studios and stuff where not only was I designing stuff, but I was also doing the production. And there was much more of a cliff between those jobs. And I don't mean that like one was higher or lower. I just mean that there was a wall. So in most of the jobs I had, once it was approved as a design, then we would move to doing the production, which was on the boards. But it was much more of a production. And that's why, you know, where that term production artists that you're just expanding the design across like you know you designed an annual report with a cover and maybe two or three spreads and then it would go to a production artist and every once in a while when there might be a design question or whatever it might come back to you so that was that discernible difference and you know especially and then even more so in an agency like an advertising agency where your art directors who work with copywriters are much more about the ideation and coming up with the idea and the campaign and working with the associate creative director and the creative director to hammer out this campaign idea. And again, that would have been in the, in the, you know, the good old days of four, four decades ago, that would have been marker renderings or sketches and compared to today's standard, very rough presentations selling the idea. And then once the idea is sold again in an agency setting that, you know, maybe you did an ad for Honda motorcycles and you would have done it as a billboard in terms of presenting it to the client. But now the production artist is part of the, the team that's going to um, expand that out to different tactics. So they're going to they're going to take that billboard design and they're going to make it a magazine ad and they're going to make it a this and a that. And the proportions change and the photography has got to get done. Um those were the hard lines. So, t but today, you know, we're doing comps on the computer for the most part, which is like millimeters away from being production art. So being a production designer is for me, part and parcel with being a graphic designer or an, uh, or an art director. The difference like for me fundamentally is that like a graphic designer deals with the nuance of design and the execution of the, of the design. Whereas art directors are fundamentally more about uh, like the 30,000 foot idea and campaign stuff. I feel like, I mean, I've worked as a graphic designer and a production designer. And what I learned was that if your graphic designer is really good, the production is done. Mostly those lines are really, it's a really blurry line. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it can be, there can still be some, some need for people to check your files because, sure. you know, you need to have that that understanding of when to use RGB, when to use CMYK. Um, even though, you know, we're not offset printing as much anymore, there still are times when you need to have things in CMYK and things in RGB. Oh, um, yeah. If anything, it's making it more important because you spec a Pantone and it's getting printed in four-color process rather than, or, or digital process. Um, right. So it's definitely not actually Pantone. Your production folks are printing out a hundred different CMYK swatches, finding the one that's closest to the Pantone swatch. So yeah, your designer can't do that. It has to be the production folks in the print house taking care of those sorts of problems. Yeah, or, or, or somebody who, unlike me, is not colorblind, right? All so. right. So you're one of the 8% of men 
who have that uh are you red green or what a deuteranopia and protonopia yeah i'm i'm a red green which leads to brown which um I, I mean, the fortunate thing, I, I was lucky to find out before I went to college uh, because at uh, at St. Lawrence College, we had uh, two or three semesters of color theory that we had to actually produce color theory projects. And like, if I had not known I was colorblind, I probably would have failed that class. Yeah, that, that would have been kind of tough. Mm-hmm. But because of it, like the, the two guys that uh, the course, because the course at the college was St. Lawrence College treated it a bit like OCA in the sense that at the time there was a fine arts program, a photography program, and a graphic design program. And we all shared um, classes like color theory, life drawing, and just basic drawing. Um, it was a way to sort of intermix all of the different disciplines, but also be getting the same piece of information across to all of these people at the same time, the same way. And the two guys that taught color theory uh were two brits uh robert vanderpeer and david perkins and uh they in the very first class they asked you know in their very sort of british way they're not so long if anybody's you know like um you know like colorblind you just let us know you know we won't fail you and you know we just need to know so like right away after the class i went and told them and they noted it so i think i automatically i got a b but I did all of the assignments because I, I felt that the course was very good from a standpoint of understanding background, the, the theory, what you want color to do. But, you know, back then, there, again, as I said, there weren't computers. So we had, to, we had to paint all of our chips to do our assignments. And if you think, you know, creating color chips, if, you're, if your eyes are okay is one thing. Try it when you have, you doubt everything you're doing color-wise. They would just, they would look at my assignment <laughs> They would just, they'd ask me questions like, so you, uh, you think this is doing what the assignment asked? And I'm like, yeah. And they would make notes on the back and they kept every one of my assignments. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, but I think that, I mean, but like, you know, you talk about Pantone colors and I think that that is, we're seeing it now that there's a shift that Pantone is not even really becoming something that's important anymore in terms of the pure, like mixed colors. Um, because we are so not printing specialized spot colors that much anymore that we're just going and find we're basing everything on either CMYK or RGB colors to begin with. Yeah, I, I you know, there, yeah, I'm on your side there. I don't know if there's sides, but I have some pretty heated conversations with other designers and I don't think Pantone matters. I understand the need for brand consistency, but if you pick, if you go to McDonald's and you look at the red on their bag and the red on their cup and the red on the sign and the other sign and the red on the menu board, none of those reds are the same. You know, I still know I'm in McDonald's. There's no confusion happening. The reality is like, we can't, even if you have the exact same Pantone ink and you print it as a spot onto all these different substrates, you're always going to get a different color. And the clients don't want to spend money on Pantone for the most part. And so I, I feel like most of the jobs I've done in the last little while have been CMYK matched to a Pantone. And now that those swatches don't ship with Adobe and you have to either import your old libraries, which is what I did, or you can pay money for Pantone Connect, which I won't do, people aren't going to be using Pantone. I'm in the middle of working on a project. It's a print piece. Like it's a rare actually going to be printed. And the text color 
from the brand book is it's not a super dark it's not like a charcoal gray but it's a dark gray and they they won't do a fifth color wow so they're willing to print their body text yeah, the client you mean the client at a four color because they don't want to pay for the fifth color to make it a crisp solid text you know as you said it's you know it's money it's it's money and i mean those printers 10 point rich black font i mean it's a testament to the printers because if they can is this being printed offset or, or digital yeah offset wow yep, yep. wow but they're so, but the but the presses are you know the presses are way different than they were 20 years yeah. ago 40 years ago like the consistent like you know, when, when I first started in the industry and we'd have to go do press checks, we'd have to go and actually, you know, be at the press to, to sign off the sheet. Um, yeah. Some of those press checks, I remember, they might take an hour and a half, two hours. Yeah. Because there would be not only adjustments in, you know, the ink wells, and for those that might be listening that have not been to a printing press uh, operation, you know, when you're on a, like a Heidelberg 40 inch press, that's like a 10 color or eight color now, or you go back even to four color Heidelbergs from 40 years ago, the ink is controlled, let's say across that 40 inch stretch. Uh, sorry, uh, for, a 40 inch roller, Scott? Yeah, 40 inch roller. Okay. Across that 40 inch thing of ink, you've got sort of control of uh, like about 30 or so different sort of ink wells. Um, it's it, it's mechanical. It's not always going to be exactly even all the time. No. Um, the the pressure on the blanket that holds the image for the offset printing won't necessarily, you know, especially you know presses from you know forty fifty years ago w wouldn't necessarily hold the pressure completely. So they, I mean, I remember pressmen getting in and putting pieces of paper under blankets to help raise the pressure. So that the image gets onto the you know the actual printed page better, but now the, like the new presses, like some of the new ones, Heidelberg's got uh, eight color. They've got eight tower uh, printing machines, 10, 10 tower printing machines, and you know they're going from the digital file. They're bypassing film. They're just putting it right onto the um, plate. So the quality, first of all, of your plates is way better that's going to print on the on the press the quality of the blankets is better the consistency of the build is better so like you go now and sometimes you're like you're doing a press check and you get there and you you're looking at it and you're like why am i even here this is perfect like yeah you know you're in and out in 12 minutes yeah um i feel like the only struggle is is color fidelity sometimes I still have days where I'm like, can, I, can you not match this purple? Yeah, yeah. But, but that's, I mean, it again depends on if you're trying to match something that's in CMYK that's, that's not CMYK, there's always going to be challenges. And as you said, the paper. Um, but you go to a place like McDonald's, as you said, like they could toggle, if they're printing their cups, th their cups might only be printing in two colors. Therefore, they're, they're, they have to use spot colors. They have to use a spot, yeah. But when they print something else that is got photography they have to go for color mcdonald's might be a little bit different because they're running hundreds of thousands if not millions yeah. of things that they're printing like if you have the contract to print the the fries boxes you know yeah 
you're printing those all day. Yeah. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. yeah. On yeah, one of your yeah. presses. Absolutely. And as you said, the, the color isn't necessarily going to be the brand recognition thing. You know, the consistency of the brand application is going to be more important than the specific color. Although I think that there's a tolerance for how far a, a brand color can be off oh, before we go. Oh, that just doesn't seem, I mean, that's always the fun thing in this industry is finding your color, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. what's the difference between like the Royal bank blue and the bank of Montreal blue, mm -hmm. like there is, but on one level, they're both blue. But on the other level, when you put them beside each other, you go like, oh, wow, there's a huge difference. Yeah, definitely. I'm thinking Royal Bank is more institutional and old world and established. BMO, maybe a little friendlier, a little bit more open, maybe younger in a weird way. But that could just be the gold. Anyways, I, I, I read you. If you want to go side on that, the... Bank of Montreal logo wasn't supposed to be blue. The design, the, his, the history to that logo is that the top is a folded dollar bill and the bar on the bottom is gold. Mm. So that was the, the, those were the original colors that the design were, that it was green on top, like solid green, and gold on the bottom. Green? I, I remember the gold BMO, but I don't remember green. No, no, like the original design of that logo. It never made it to market. Uh, oh, okay, okay. They changed it. They made it like the they made it the blue, but it was originally that it was representat representative of a dollar bill and gold. I find that a lot of times designers we 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 always want, especially with logos, we always want to start with how can I take these literal symbols of something and distort them into the shape of a letter of the company, and so often designers try to do that and then you end up just going with an abstraction of that idea and it works better than the idea itself yeah well it's always the starting point right and that that's always a challenge i find it was a challenge a little bit when i was in school that was a challenge for my students when i was teaching is to get students to and even in the workplace designers to have lots of explorations you know, to not just have one and be like, I did it. I came up with the logo. It's like, <laughs> not even close, like really sort of, ex you know, and then once you're into that, that you've done this expansion and then it's, it's to even take the ones that you've done and now expand just on like, if, if, if you know, from a bank of Montreal logo standpoint, you know, the expansion of how thick would that bottom bar be? How, what angle does the top need to be? Like all those nuances, because, you know, whether you change it by, you know, one point, two points or whatever, it makes a huge difference in the end. Again, to what you said, that you can have a starting point that can have all this good intention, but then to see past it, to be like, oh, I, th I think there's something else here is always important. I know like everyone gets, you know, a Eureka or a stroke of genius and you do something, you're like, this is it. And then, most of us will look at that a month later and be like, what was I thinking? So that's why we want to explore lots and lots of options before we decide, you know, this is it. And when you decide this is it, that will probably change. As a student, when you're doing this by yourself, it can be very trying or very taxing. 
um, but in an agency setting, is there a dynamic between the designer and the art director throughout this um, ex exploration of multiple options? Yes and no. Like the you know, since the pandemic, there has definitely been a shift away from um, as much collaboration as I would really like to see. I think in an office setting, when you are close to your colleagues, it's much easier to get feedback or to even to just put a series of sketches or things that you've done up on a wall and just have people walk by and comment. And I'm not and I'm not saying that because I want necessarily everybody's input, but I, I want to get sort of fresh takes on it because there's always going to be things that you don't see or don't understand. And even to have somebody like, whether they're an account uh, person or a project manager, to, to be able to add something where you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that aspect of it, or wow, I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, in that the, that color for this culture means something or whatever. So I think from a like from a student standpoint, and it, I know it can be difficult, but it's to try and sort of give yourself different avenues to sort of go down. And a project we did in school, which helped very much, especially from a logo standpoint, that there are three sort of categories that your logo can fall under. It can be symbolic, it can be representational, or it can be abstract. So those are the three sort of categories that a logo can be. Then within each of those, then you can apply stylistic aspects to it. So you could apply the stylistic aspect of it, of the logo being modular so that all of the weight is the same. You could apply it where it's 3D. It could be illustrative. It could be, um, see, and this is where I, I lose the list because there's a couple more. But just on that um, list alone, like just what I've listed, that's three by three. So right there, you know, somebody has the opportunity to take nine different approaches to even the same idea. And that's the other thing that, you know, that you've done something and you're like, I should do this like this because it works. But then you then say, okay, what, what if I did it as a 3D? What if I did it as a modular? What if I did it symbolically? What if I did it representationally? What if I then abstracted it? So right in that you have the, you know, within that, even that one eureka moment you have, you have the ability to iterate from that one without necessarily deviating from the core idea of what you had. Right. Because that, that core idea could be good. Could be. And, and it's not, it's not that I, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people that's like, it's your first idea, you know, it gets you to your good idea. It might be a good idea, but at the same time, it also might need to become more refined to be the good idea. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah, and I think that, um, I mean, and if I could pass along for students, this is the best advice that I ever got. And I hope it resonates either with you or with students. And part of it is because I'm colorblind, but especially for logos, I don't bring color into the equation at all at the beginning at all, because if it doesn't work in black and white, color is not going to help it. I think that's a, one of the most important constraints 
generally I avoid constraints, but that's absolutely one I I would also endorse. But see, that's a weird that's a weird thing to say to avoid constraints because that is the world that graphic design and advertising live within. Not at the in the ideation phase, saying, "Oh, I'm not going to do that." Oh, I don't want. Ugh. Oh, no. from that standpoint, yeah, the idea that everything we do as a constraint, whether it's the physical paper size, whether it's the number of colors available, at some at some point there will always be a restriction on what we do in this world. That and for me, that is that is what I love about the challenge of graphic design. It's like not that business cards are being printed or used anymore, but a business card in North America, three and a half inches by two inches. Mm-hmm. That's not a lot of space to make something look great and be communicatively functional. That's a huge challenge. That's that's what I love. That's I love that there is that constraint. But yeah, in terms of ideation, yeah, don't don't think that it has to be this typeface or it has to be this color or it has to be this sort of look. Yeah. Yeah, let it go. Let it go. Actually in on on the issue of constraints, I take a maybe a weird comfort in constraints because of all the things swirling around in the design world, it's like well, eight and a half eleven is going to be eight and a half eleven, and I don't have to, you know. At least that's one thing I can control. Yeah, and and what can you do within it, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not taking anything away from fine art, but fine art has no boundaries, right? It can be whatever the artist wants it to be. Does it have to fit in a building? No. Can it be a performance? Yes. Can, you know, there's no limit to yeah. what fine art can be. But applied arts, graphic design, advertising, um, industrial design, interior design, you know, if you look at everything that pretty much was, you know, in the core foundations of the Bauhaus, they all have restrictions, not, not, you know, not in a bad way, just in a practical way. Yeah, you know, this is actually a really interesting way to think about design. Like you say that fine art has no limits. I would actually say um, fine art has anti-limit. So if you emulate uh, Vermeer or if you paint the same thing as Rothko, people are going to say it just looks like Rothko. You actually have to do something that hasn't been done. You have to find a frontier. You have to find a limit. Otherwise, your art is boring or derivative. With design, you actually have to live in this weird area on on the edges of the limits, but still in the limits. Like if you design a bank logo that doesn't look at all like a bank if it looks like baby's toys no one's gonna go so like your logo has to look unique but it also has to look like a bank because it has to be a little bit trustworthy etc that that brings me up to probably the most important word for me when it comes to design and advertising but more design versus advertising and that is the word appropriate yeah you know it it has to be appropriate and a lot of times people misunderstand that and they think that it has to be obvious or it needs to be sort of you know it has to you know fit this idea that somebody has of a bank and it's like no it doesn't have to but you also have to understand that the audience that you're trying to talk to needs to have as you said like comfort or to look at something and know that if i give them money that they're not just going to spend it you know that there's so the appropriate isn't necessarily only just like appropriate for like banking it's also appropriate for the people that have to do the banking it's appropriate for all kinds of things but you know that and that's 
always the challenge, especially for students, is that students would come up with, and I, I, I would always welcome students to to go, you know, far in their ideation and ideas because it's so much easier to pull students back and and pull people back on ideas than it is to push people forward on an idea. They can have a wild idea, and the first litmus test is, this is amazing. Is it appropriate? for the audience, the tactic, and the client. Because you can push boundaries, but it also has to be within that realm, for me, uh, as appropriate. So we were talking about the physical constraints of the the physical page or business card, but we also have these conceptual constraints. Yeah, there are so many sort of gotchas in the world of communications. And again, going back to the original sort of crux of the question, Yes, it's something for students to think about, but are they going to leave a two or a three-year program fully versed in everything that they're going to need for the rest of their career? And it's like, no, that there's, it, it's, you're going to pick that up. You're going right. to, you know, you're going to work with art directors and senior designers that are going to help you hone that thinking process to put it into perspective, to, you know, to learn how to do you know, InDesign and Illustrator and Photoshop files better and cleaner and things you didn't know that those programs could do. And this is a a hard one, is to to learn and understand what you don't know and understand. I mentioned to a student once that when, when you graduate and you get your first job, in a lot of ways, that's the least skilled you'll ever be as a designer. Like you're only gonna get better and I, I didn't phrase it as well as you did, and I wish I would have, because that kind of scared this student. I was like, well, what do you mean I'm not going to be good? Well, it's like, no, it's just like you have so much runway. You have the rest of your career to grow, and you shouldn't expect, and no one expects you to have a full understanding of everything your first day as a junior or as an intern. That's true, but I will, I will put this caveat out there that, you know, when I look at a portfolio, whether it's a student, it could be a somewhat seasoned practitioner. I don't care if their work is finished, like if it's an actual project. If somebody's been doing it for 15 years, I, I would like to think that all of their work in their portfolio is, is done and uh, completed projects. But at the same time, if they wanted to show their take on a campaign or a new campaign and they worked with a copywriter or whatever, or, you know, redesign logos, um, I'm open for that because, again, going back to student portfolios, I want to see how they think and how they work because I, I don't give a shit how good they think they are at Illustrator. I don't give a shit how good they think they are at InDesign. I don't give a shit how good they think they are at After Effects, Photoshop, or Sketch. If for some reason they're simple and they want to use Sketch, I don't, you know, they, whatever, because whether the course is two or three years, the mathematics alone tell me that they cannot have spent enough time in any of those programs to be even slightly really good at any of them. Again, from a mathematics standpoint, what pieces of software do you and your, your students are two years? I personally teach XD, um, InDesign and After Effects. What else do the students touch? XD, Photoshop, After Effects, InDesign, Illustrator, Figma, WordPress. I can't even name them all. Let's just take that. That was, I think, seven. So let's take that seven. They're going September till April? 
Yep. Not only are they uh, during this time trying to pick up the software, some of them might be working for the most part for the first time really on a computer. So you've got that. And then I would assume in this two years, you're also possibly teaching them about some design stuff and typography. Yeah, I hope so. And I would hope that some of these students are even sleeping. So <laughs> mathematically, the number of hours that they could max out in, in the work they're trying to do in any one of those programs is very limited. And they're still learning, you know, Illustrator while they're trying to produce stuff in Illustrator to hand in to you. But the challenge is, is that they come out of school, I think they think that they're somewhat okay at what they're doing in any one of those programs. Um, but the reality is, is that um, unless they're unique, they, their understanding of any one of those programs is going to be no more than like 16 or 17% of what that program can do, if that. If I try, if I based my, uh, looking at a portfolio or interviewing somebody on that knowledge, then I'm not going to hire them. I want to see their ideas. I'll question when I look at their work, I'll question the positioning of something or the weight of something or the idea behind something. I don't care about how they built the file. That's going to get corrected. <laughs> However they built the file is going to get corrected. And, you know... Um, they're going to get introduced to new techniques and new ways of working. And this isn't taking anything away from you or any other instructor. The challenge with software, ever since the beginning of software for this, you know, world of graphic design and advertising, is that when people learn a program in school and they were in school when it was version eight, for the most part, unless they are super enthusiastic and are one of those people that likes to dig deep and learn and push people that learned Photoshop eight for the most part are using the current version of Photoshop as if it's eight. A lot of times they're unaware of advances or changes that either make it easier to do stuff that make it more efficient, more proficient, or just things that you can or can't do. You know, I've been using um, most of the software, in this industry since almost version one <laughs> like photoshop the first version i used was version 1.07 they didn't even have layers until three and and there was like version one to 2.5 and then three in design i started on 1.0 like some of the features just got me like i was so quick to switch over from quark express but the thing is is that like i, I was working with somebody and they were using Photoshop. And this is like the, this is, you know, a side point that this is one of the things I miss from the pandemic is working beside people where you get to watch and they get to watch or you get to oversee something. And then you get to say, Hey, what the hell did you just do? I watched a guy put a guide in a specific spot, like a very specific spot in Photoshop. And I'm like, what the hell did you just do? And do you know this trick, Eric? Positioning a guide in Photoshop? No, to I'm perfectly to I'm perfectly put a, a guide in Photoshop where you want. In Photoshop, no, I, I don't use Photoshop much. Yeah. Under view, there's a menu item called new guide. Okay. So if you click that, you can you can tell a new guide to go horizontally or vertically to a very specific pixel position or 
you could type in something like 50%. That's how I do it in vector. I make, I make a shape that takes me to the spot and then I drag the guide out and I snap it to the shape. Right. That's how I've always done it. But in, but in Photoshop, you can do it like by just adding a guide at 50% or at 25% or at 75% or at 144 pixels. But I watched a guy do that. Yeah. And I thought I was pretty up on Photoshop. And I watched it like this was, I don't know how long ago this was, 2008 maybe? So 15 years ago. And yeah. he told me what he did. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's going into my back pocket. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I'm going to use that all the time now. So yeah, I, I still use Pathfinder when I know I should be using ShapeMaker or ShapeBuilder. I don't even know what it's called. When you reach a certain familiarity with the software and a new feature gets released, you don't learn the new feature or you think you shouldn't. Like you just, it never seems to be a good time to learn the new feature when you know you could do it the, the old way. Um, so I think I just share in that experience a little right. bit. Right. And that, and that, and by default, that is most people. Yeah. You know, it, that for the most part, most people don't even know that new features are, have been added because they don't necessarily even read the emails or whatever the pop or, or, or the pop-up at the beginning. Yeah. They're like, yeah, whatever, close. <laughs> yeah. I need to do this. Yeah. But, but, but that's also why people like me, I'm, I'm adding to the conversation by doing my Behance broadcast, right? Part of the challenge for me becomes that, you know, and it goes back to students, is the idea that a lot of times their ideas are going to be bigger than their skill to execute the idea. Yes. And that is a challenge when we rely and we think we need to rely on the skill to show the idea, and we don't. If you can get your idea across with a sketch, show me a sketch. If, you're, if your idea is best shown as um, a mock-up made out of plaster scene, do that. It doesn't have to be on a computer done in Illustrator because what will happen is that you will limit your ideas to what you can skillfully produce. And in school, you're handcuffed. Yeah, it's limited to your skill, what you can find a stock photo for, what typeface you can get for free, like all these things that don't represent your the the value of your of your mental contribution i think that there's this sense and i don't know where it comes from and and maybe it's other studios and other people like it's not me but this desire to see fully fleshed out finished looking pieces and it's like but that's not necessarily the height of their idea hmm. their idea may be way better than what they were able to produce and again, it's, as you said, it's, you know, from a photography standpoint, this is all you can find. For me, it's, it's more about the idea, like, this is the photo you found that somebody else already had an idea to take. What photo do you think you would need to support this idea? Even if all you have is a sketch and notes beside it, I would appreciate that more than having a photo that does not really help your idea. We're suggesting that for a junior, a great idea is preferred to um, polished execution of a mediocre idea or polished execution that sort of guts the heart of a great idea. But if you're 
a graduate, you're a junior, you're applying for jobs, you might feel self-conscious about having, let's call it half-finished work in your portfolio or sketches in your portfolio, comps of an ad. What are your thoughts on that? Like, how can I show the world my great idea in a way that doesn't make me look like I'm not ready for the professional world? Yeah, I mean, that is, that's a tough one because, you know, I think... Hi everyone. So this was a really long episode and I decided to break it up into two parts. You can catch Scott's answer to this question on the next episode. And thanks again for listening. Mm -hmm.